Pop Culture Affidavit episode 38. We're not gonna protest. This, this, is, this is something, man. This is, this is our generation, man. All you people, we're all together, man. It's groovy. And dig yourselves, because it's really groovy. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm continuing my series of episodes called 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with a look at a film that isn't necessarily one of the most important films of 1994 or of the 1990s, but is a film that in the tradition of movies like Better Off Dead or Can't Buy Me Love has become of a bit of a cult classic since it was first released in the theater in 1994, and that is PCU. But first... I have emails. My first email is from Gene Hendricks, who is the host of the Quantum Cast and the Hammer Podcasts, which are both part of the Two True Freaks Network. Gene says, Tom, it's odd. You and I are so close in age and geographic location. I'm from South Jersey. And yet it seems our tastes have nothing in common. Out of everything you've talked about on the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast, most TV shows and movies I haven't seen or haven't even heard of. And your music taste is pretty much the complete opposite of mine. However, even if you're talking about something that I don't have any interest in, my so-called life, for example, or that I actively dislike, oh, that Green Day show was hard to get through, I still like hearing you talk about it. I think it's your passion for the subject matter that makes me want to listen to your opinion. It's very much like Trentus Magnus talking about Smallville, fascinating discussion about a topic I couldn't care less about. Then there are the topics that we sync up on. Your Rob Kelly interview, Sound Problems Aside, was great, as was your comics discussion with Michael Bailey, and I am also a huge G.I. Joe fan from way back. Oh, and go Rangers. When you hit on these things, it's like the stars of the line. It makes, it, it makes for a glorious listening experience. So I say again, well done, Gene. P.S. Your weekend at Bernie's commentary made me certain that you are the kind of English teacher I hated in school. When reading East of Eden, make sure you remember that everyone with a name beginning with A is a good is good and beginning with a C is bad, except for these 50 examples. Yes, that's an exaggeration, at least the number exception is. Sometimes, though, to paraphrase Freud, two schmucks willing a dead guy around are, well, just two schmucks willing a dead guy around. Winky face. Thanks very much, Gene. I'm glad you've been enjoying the podcast, even episodes about things that aren't in your wheelhouse. I always love it when podcasts cover stuff that I'm not usually interested in and then make me interested in it, even if it's only for that hour or two. I have a second email. It's from a person who some say is one of the most important podcast emailers out there. And some say his presence makes a podcast elite. Some say I should stop stealing Andy Leyland's bit. And I will. So anyway, Luke Giaconetti has emailed in and he says, Tom, I just wanted to drop you a quick line about your latest episode of Pop Culture Affidavit covering band Books Week. 
I worked at the M.L. Cooper Library at Clemson University for three years or so after I got my B.S. I was a library technical assistant in catalog government documents. M.L. Cooper is a federal depository library, so we had a lot of federal government documents to catalog. But the research librarian who worked in our unit was a big proponent of Banned Books Week. I'm a conservative, and have never hidden or disguised that fact, so the idea of limiting access to literature based on, quote, we know better than you, is an anathema to me. And as a father, albeit my children are a bit younger than your son, the idea of parental guidance on what to read or watch is exceptionally more powerful and meaningful to me than an unelected or elected administrator telling me what is or is not appropriate for me or my family. We're still at the Sesame Street and Cars slash Cars 2 slash Planes stage with mine, so not much to worry about there. Heck, I'm still at the Cars Cars 2 stage, Planes stage myself. But... I know that it is going to become a more pressing matter for me and my wife as they get older, and that is ultimately the defense of, against some, won't someone think of the children argument. Someone is thinking of the children, and that's their parents. But before I get off on a rant, let me sign off by saying I enjoyed your show and hope that your listeners checked out some banned books in honor of Banned Books Week. Keep up the good work, Luke. P.S. You got a shout-out on the episode of Long Play, which Hair Metal Hero and I recorded last night as we had a discussion about the Rime of the Ancient Mariner. I'll let you figure out what band we were discussing. Thanks for the email, Luke. I got a real kick out of doing the Band Books Week episode, and honestly, I, I think it's something I'd like to revisit next year. What's funny, too, is that even though you're self-identifying as a conservative, and my views are very much on the liberal side of the aisle... We seem to find ourselves in agreement on much of the issue here. I'm sure that if we were to sit down and actually discuss it, we'd find differences in how we view a number of the details. But I've also always felt that personal responsibility is incredibly important here. I think that parents have a responsibility to help guide their children as they navigate through literature, comics, or any other medium of entertainment. And part of that guidance comes, uh, includes instilling in them the ability to think critically about what they're reading and looking at. Like I said in the episode, I get upset when anybody tries to dictate what can and cannot be read. And your email prompted me to listen to that episode of Long Play, by the way. And while I'm I'm in no way of an Iron Maiden fan, I'm very, very unfamiliar with Iron, Iron Maiden beyond seeing um, album covers and t-shirts when uh, when I was when I was younger. Um, but I absolutely love this episode, and I went back and I started listening to uh, to the Long Play podcast from episode one, and I highly recommend it as uh, well as Luke's other stuff, which you can find on the Two True Freaks Network. So uh, go check that out, especially Long Play. It is a great, great podcast. And that's it for emails this time around. If you'd like to write in. You can do so at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or by leaving a comment or message on the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll talk about PCU. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked and young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com You might think you know about school! 
But I got something to say to you. What are you, a narc? No, no, I'm, I'm a pre-frost. Um, emissions arranged for me to uh, spend the night at your, your frat. Well, here's all you need to know. Classes, nothing before 11. Beer, it's your best friend, you drink a lot of it. Women, you're freshmen, so it's pretty much out of the question. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. Politically correct. What do we eat? What happened to the ozone layer? It was last week. Well, now it's meat. Let's do lunch. Try to the Porchester Sports Program, Tom. Hippie Olympics. Hey, it's the 90s. We'll take what we can get. Gays in the military now. Free Nelson Mandela. They tried him already. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time to revive an ancient tradition we seem to have long forgotten. You guys are talking about a party. Meet Dave and Dave are on beer. Donsman back. Sunroof. All right. <laughs> What's everybody doing? Finishing their thesis, Buzzhead. What? Am I okay on that side? That's good. Play Metallica and they will come. Can you get us in? Yeah, I think so. What happened to that cute preppy cake? You're gonna wear the shirt of the band you're gonna go see. Don't be that guy. You know, this place is kind of insane. PCU! Prepare yourself for initiation. Try to relax. So, PCU was released on, in theaters on April 29th, 1994, and it made $4.3 million at the box office, which makes it the 144th highest grossing movie in 1994. This puts it $1.3 million in six places behind Airheads at 138, and a little bit ahead of Cabin Boy, which was at 146. For all intents and purposes, PCU was a complete bomb. And honestly, I didn't see it in theaters. Although for some weird-ass reason, I saw Cabin Boy. Yeah, I saw Cabin Boy at the frickin' movie theater. Anyway, I first saw PCU in the spring or so of 1995 when I happened across the film in the video store one night and thought, I think I remember seeing that advertised on TV. I'll rent it. I think I'd also just seen Animal House for the first time, so I figured... Why not? That's not why I'm covering PCU on this podcast. No. You have to fast forward about three or four years for that. And Comedy Central, which in the late 1990s had a series of movies they would run under the banner of Master Cheese Theater. Basically, it was like, here are cheesy comedies that we have the rights to, so we're going to show them to you using interstitials of expensive-looking cheeses that are narrated by a guy in a very bad English accent. I really wish I was kidding with that description, but that was pretty much what it was. And hey, it's not the first nor the last time that a channel would package its movies in some way. TBS for years throughout the 90s had, and early 2000s had a show called Dinner in a Movie, where it was like Annabeth Gerwich and somebody else would actually cook dinner. They'd like have like a little cook and chat 
show going on before and then between com- bet- during commercial breaks and stuff like that while you, TBS was running a movie. Years and years before that, USA had Up All Night. Um, I think Rhonda Shear hosted that and Gilbert Gottfried at one point, perhaps. And even, you know, like channels like WPIX, um, while they didn't have like a certain host doing the movies, at least when I was a kid, they would have, um, you know, they would group their movies together every once in a while and, and give it a promotional name like, you know, um, Shocktober, you know, and stuff like that. So Comedy Central had Master Cheese Theater. One of the movies that played as part of Master Cheese Theater in the rotation there was PCU. And since this was a cable network in the 1990s, they played the film endlessly. It seemed for a time that PCU was on just about all the time. And I think that's what contributed to its growing status as a minor cult flick. Now, as for the movie itself, the elevator pitch for PCU is basically an animal house for the 90s. This was roughly about a year before the resurgence of teen movies in 1995, which starts with roughly about Scream and Clueless. Um, Although, to be honest, the college comedy really didn't get much of a revival in, I'd say, Road Trip in 2000, which was one of the more successful ones. And even that movie actually doesn't really hold up as well as, say, Animal House or some of the others in the genre do. But though PCU is derivative of films like Animal House, its origin is actually grounded in reality. The film was written by Zach Penn and Adam Leff. Uh, Penn, by the way, has gone on to be a writer on films like The Avengers. And uh, Penn and Leff based the film off of their experiences as, at Wesleyan University. The Pit, which is the name of the former fraternity house where most of the main characters live, is based off of a pseudo-fraternity at Wesleyan that was known as Eclectic. Much like the pit in the film, Eclectic used to be an actual fraternity, and it has its own website. The About page on Eclectic reads, The Eclectic Society of Phi Nu Theta was established in 1837. It was the first fraternity established at Wesleyan, and the oldest local, non-national fraternity in the United States. In 1970, Eclectic was the first fraternity at Wesleyan to co-educate and was renamed the Eclectic Society, without the Phi Nu Theta. The Eclectic House is at 200 High Street, was built in 1907, and was designed by Henry Bacon. In 2013, the house was added to the National and State of Connecticut Historic Registries. According to the Wikipedia page, Penn and Left were regulars at the Eclectic. Uh, they were not formal members. There's a little more here as well. Um, Justin Olivetti, who is part or or was part of a site called the Mutant Reviewers from Hell, which is a blog that is still active, used to have a pretty extensive fan site for PCU way back in the early 2000s. Unfortunately, his site is no longer up, but thanks to the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, I was able to access some of the old pages, and there is a page about eclectic people wrote into the site and talked about some of the characters that Penn and left based on people at the college. This is from Mark Gutter Flax. I stumbled across your site and thought it might be interested in a bit of PCU trivia. My name is Mark Flax, and I was a classmate at Wesleyan of Zach Penn and Adam Leff. In fact, Zach's dorm room frost year was across the hall from mine, and we've been friends pretty much ever since. I became somewhat of a famous figure around Wesleyan in the 86 to 90 era because I was one of the few, quote, white guys with dreads that anyone in Connecticut, anyway, had ever seen. Being from California, I was already sort of a novelty there, but the dreads really caught some attention. 
I was also a source of amusement for Zack and Adam because of my occasional flakiness and airheadedness. So, when they originally wrote PCU, they included a character named Flax, who was a white dude with dreads. That's pretty much where my similarity to the character, who would eventually become Gutter, ends. I.e., I never passed out in the streets of Middletown. I would definitely have recognized George Clinton if he asked me for directions, and I did and do exhale and inhale, etc. When Zach and Adam were writing the script, they were looking for material and arranged to visit me at UC Santa Cruz, where I was then a grad student, since UCSC is a, quite a bit like Wesleyan, and there is and is definitely a PCU. They hung out with me and my friends and asked all sorts of questions about student lingo, current political causes and conflicts on campus, egregious examples of political correctness, etc. At the time, I joked with them that if they named their character Flax, I would sue the pants off them. Their producer got freaked by this, and so they changed the name to Gutter. This name actually came from the student lingo my friends taught them. Gutter was a term they often used to refer to anything that was low-class, shabby, idiotic, etc. Another reference in the movie to that visit, I think, is when PCU changes its mascot to some endangered bird. UC Santa Cruz had recently changed its mascot to the banana slug, which Zach and Adam found hilarious. Anyway, I had a lot of fun being involved in the early stages of the movie. I was not serious about suing them, but I'm still glad my name was not used for that character. And my best memory is meeting John Favreau at the cast party after the shoot and standing there and saying, this is weird, isn't it? And him saying, yeah, it's really pretty creepy and then we drank a few beers together anyway i teach college myself now at california state university long beach where my students are always psyched to learn of my connection to pcu i still wish my character had been more likable but i'm glad to see the movie has developed cult status and i have a great time following the career of favreau who's really done some great work since then my favorite line from the movie yeah 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 i have no tom this next piece is from john vigman Hello, I saw the website as a buddy of mine from another school said, and he saw, quote, me in it. Never heard of the film. Perhaps I have been sheltered too many years here in the Netherlands from, quote, art. And noticed that the Pigman character is supposedly based on me. For the record, I did do a thesis in Eclectic was not really that wild a place, at least not in my eyes. There were some pretty interesting people who hung out there, but there were also too many people trying to be something they were not. Wesleyan was, even in the early 80s, was a pretty tame place with the exception of a couple of pseudo-political rallies that sometimes made getting your mail difficult. And then this one is from Chuck O'Neill. Who are you? Why do you know about my house? I am Chuck O'Neill, president of Eclectic Society at Wesleyan University. I'm also mentioned by Paul from the Adults in Their Tour Diary pages. He wasn't seeing a show. He was playing one. If you want to know about Eclectic, uh, you should come see it. If you would like to see the real pit, it's less pittish now. It got repainted over the summer. Feel free to come and see it. He says, we're located to High Street in Middletown, Connecticut. There's usually someone awake and there's usually someone drinking. So quick thanks to the Internet Archive for preserving the page and to give credit where credit is due. Once again, those were compiled by Justin Olivetti, who is, or at least years ago, was part of the Mutant Reviewers from Hell. The PCU page is no longer up, but the Mutant Reviewers are still around, and you can find it at mutantreviewers.wordpress.com. Now, 
onto the film itself. It was directed by Hart Bachner, whose other notable director credit is the John Lovitz movie High School High, and who's, he, but who is more known for his career as a character actor. I'd say his most famous role, at least to people my age, is as Ellis, the coke-snorting slimeball in Die Hard who sells out John McClane to Hans Gruber because he's, quote, trying to negotiate and winds up with a bullet in his head. Look, let's be straight, okay? It's obvious you're not some dumb schmuck up here to snatch a few purses, am I right? You're very perceptive. I watch 60 Minutes. I say to myself, these guys are professional. They're motivated. They're happening, i.e., they want something, huh? Now, personally, I couldn't care less about your politics. Maybe you're pissed off at the camel jockeys. Maybe it's the Hebes, Northern Island. It's none of my business. I figure you're here to negotiate, am I right? You're amazing. You figured this all out already. Hey, business is business. You use a gun, I use a fountain pen. What's the difference? Let's put it in my terms. You're here in a hostile takeover. You grab us for some green mail, but you didn't expect some poison pill was going to be running around in the building. Am I right? Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. I must have missed 60 minutes. What are you saying? The guy upstairs is fucking things up, huh? I can give them to you. Hey, John boy. Ellis? Yeah. Now listen, John. Give me a few minutes to try to talk some sense into you. I know you think you're doing your job, John, and I can appreciate that, but you're just dragging this thing out. Now look. No one gets out of here until these guys can talk to the L.A. police, and that just ain't gonna happen until you stop messing up the works, capiche? Ellis, what have you told them? I told them we were old friends and you were my guest at the party. Ellis, you shouldn't be doing this. Tell me about it. All right, John, listen. They want you to tell them what the detonators are. They know people are listening. They want the detonators or they're going to kill me. John, didn't you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Hey, John, I think you could get with the program a little, huh? The police are here now. It's their problem. Now, tell these guys what the detonators are so no one else gets hurt. You know, I'm putting my life on the line for you, pal. Ellis, listen to me very carefully. John. Shut up, Ellis. Just shut your mouth. Put Hans back on the line. Hans, this shithead does not know what kind of man you are, but I do. Listen. Good. Then you'll give us what we want and save your friend's life. You're not part of this equation. It's time you realized that. Hey, what am I, a method actor, Hans? <laughs> Babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television. <laughs> Hans, this asshole is not my friend. I just met him tonight. I don't know him. Jesus Christ, Ellis, these people are going to kill you. Tell them you don't know me. John, how can you say that after all these years, huh? John. John. (laughs) It 
stars Chris Young, who popped up in a few films here and there during the 80s and 90s and really hasn't done much of anything in the way of acting since 1999. Young's most famous roles probably are as that high school kid that Monica dates in a very early episode of Friends and as one of John Candy's kids in The Great Outdoors. If you're me, however, you remember him as Dan Lefcourt, the nerdy kid who hooks up with Alyssa Milano in the epic 1980s TV movie, Dance Till Dawn. Anyway, Chris Young plays Tom Lawrence, a prefrost or prospective student who is visiting Port Chester University for a weekend and has been assigned to stay with the gang in the pit, specifically with James Andrews, a.k.a. Draws, the leader of the gang of idiots who is played by, well, Draws is played by Jeremy Piven. Other members of the pit include Gutter, played by John Favreau, Mulaney, played by Alex Desert, Cecilia, played by Gail Marin, Dave One and Dave Two, who are played by Jake Grace and Darren Hames, Raji, played by Matt Ross, Deej, played by Stevie Paskoski, Pigman, played by Jody Rasicot, and Katie, who is played by Megan Ward, who at that point was probably most known for her role in Encino Man. We get a very long opening sequence where Tom arrives on campus and enters the pit, seeing that it was once a fraternity through all of these kind of group pictures of the frat that are on the walls until about the 1960s when the pictures start to say the pit and become less and less formal and prominent until the most recent one, a snapshot Polaroid which falls off the wall because it's obviously been mounted using chewing gum or something. Tom finds Draws, who wonders aloud why Admission would put a prefrosh with him and then tries to pawn him off on just about everyone before finding out that Mulaney had set it up as revenge for the time Draws put dog biscuits in his suitcase when they were on their way back from Jamaica one spring break, which made the drug-sniffing dogs go nuts. When we get to, we then get uh, some of the more classic lines from the film. Want some advice? Well, yeah. Well, here's all you need to know. Classes, nothing before 11. Beer, it's your best friend. You drink a lot of it. Women, you're freshmen, so it's pretty much out of the question. We have a car? Um, no. It's someone on your hall will. Find them and make friends with them on the first day. And then Jaws just gives Tom the campus tour, starting with the quad. We explains that the PC and PCU might stand for Portchester, but it also stands for politically correct. It seems that every single possible group out there is protesting just about anything and everything. And then we've got two groups that seem to get the most screen time. The Womenist, who are caricatures of militant feminists and a group that includes Draws' ex-girlfriend, Samantha, which will kind of be a running subplot because by the end of the movie, they'll go out for a cup of coffee. And uh, the other group is the Cause Heads, a group out of protesters led by a spaced-out hippie named Moonbeam who pick a cause and stick with it for about a week. Draws and the pit guys disrupt the cause heads protest over meat being served in the cafeteria by throwing a significant amount of raw meat on them from several floors above, and then they make a run for it. Tom gets separated and not only has an entire legion of PC-crazed protesters chasing after him, but he stumbles through a computer lab where where burned-out seniors are working on their theses and knocks over the main power supply, causing every computer screen to go blank. As Tom is being chased by the entire student body, we begin to see the actual plot of the movie develop. 
it seems that President Garcia Thompson, who is played by Arrested Development's Jessica Walter, has been trying to get the pit booted off campus for quite some time, and she's colluding with the secret fraternity of Balls and Shaft, led by Randa McPherson, who is played by David Spade. Decades ago, the pit was the fraternity house for Balls and Shaft, and Rand obviously wants it back. So Garcia Thompson hands the pit a damage bill for $7,800, and Rand and his frat bros work to make sure that the pit throws a huge party so that they'll get enough complaint forms to get kicked off campus. As predicted, Draws says the solution to the problem will be a party. Now, it's true. The majority of students today are so cravenly PC they wouldn't know a good time if it was sitting on their face. But there's one thing that will always unite us in them. They're young. They may not realize it yet. They've got the same raging hormones, the same self-destructive desire to get boldly trashed and wildly out of control. Look out that window. That's not a protest. That is cry for help. They're begging us. Please have a party. Feed us drinks. Get us laid. Ow! That's a pretty strange theory, Draws. The party really doesn't get off the ground as well as he wants it to, though. Gutter is put on beer and goes to see his stoner friends before heading into town, takes a few bong hits and winds up hallucinating the woman is asking him to blow her where the Pampers is, and then has some weird dream where he's before a Senate subcommittee hearing about whether or not he smoked up. Then he can't get the beer because he shows up at the liquor store too late because Connecticut blue laws dictate that no beer after a certain time or, or whatever, which is actually kind of pretty true. There's a Long Island blue law that um, there's like no alcohol available before noon on a Sunday or something and other states are closed Sundays and it's really, really interesting. Anyway, blue laws is a whole other topic. Word uh, with Gutter. Um, so he basically has nothing better to do but sit around in a parking lot and pick his nose. Word about the party doesn't really get out anyway. Um the the guys kind of give up when when they uh, when they try to nail a flyer to a tree and Moonbeam takes it and because they're doing harm to the tree so they're like well screw this the band blows out their instruments and well Draws winds up going to Plan B this involves swiping Rand's red BMW or at least what he thinks is Rand's red BMW and stealing two kegs in the entire bar from the alumni reception which leads to one of the best uses of the song Afternoon Delight in a movie ever. So what happens is that uh, they show up at the bar at the mo- at the, the alumni reception and the guys from Balls and Shaft are, are attending bar and, and all that other stuff and, and they steal the bar. They literally take the bar out of the room and as they're stealing it, Dross takes the Starland vocal band CD, which he found in the BMW, puts the CD into the CD player, puts Afternoon Delight on repeat, turns the volume up really high, locks the stereo cabinet, and then he locks everyone in the reception by using the club, you know, that anti-theft device that from the 90s and early 2000s where you, would, I th- think they probably make it, you put it on your steering wheel and then you lock it. It's supposed to lock the steering wheel from, from uh, you know, to keep people from, you know, stealing the actual car. Anyway, um, later on, uh, we see Garcia Thompson, Rand McPherson, and the university trustees, they, they get out of the uh, reception by breaking the window and climbing down like the trellis so that they can get out of the room, which had begun hot and, and, 
you know, hearing Afternoon Delight over and over and over and over again, I'm sure is somebody's version of hell. But anyway, that takes care of the, the booze. And um, Tom helps Katie round up the party guests by having them chase him to the pit. And, well, after Katie kisses him, because that's the romantic plot, and Gutter, who blew it with the beer, runs into George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, and they play the party. It's a rager. Uh, to the point where the womenists even have a good time. Hey, what's up, babes? Pack up your rape culture and take a hike. <laughs> hey, you want a brew dog? We're not interested in your penis. Wait, wait, I think he's offering us a beer. Um, yes, we would like a beer. It's like, if you're nice to them, they bring you things? Exactly. But of course, this is all a ruse, and Garcia Thompson shows up at the end of the party. She breaks it up, and even though the pit gives her the money that they made covering the damage bill, she shows them the complaint forms, and then Rand comes right there with the moving van, and he's ready to get to move right in, even revealing that that's not even his BMW that they trashed. And all seems lost. However... There's one thing. While hiding from the ire of the PCU student body, Tom overhears two board of trustees members talk about how much they hate Garcia Thompson and how they can't fire her unless she screws something up really big. What's that? The bicentennial celebration scheduled for the next day, which the pit disrupts by setting free the new mascot the Port Chester whooping crane and draws makes this huge speech about how they all need to get along and not protesting. And he leads an anti-protest where they all scream. We're not going to protest. We're not going to protest. Gutter is a tool. Gutter is a tool. We're not going to protest. Garcia Thompson is fired right then and there. And then Rand goes off on her and, you know, screaming at her. And then he turns his attention to draws and he screams about how every group on campus is worthless and they're ruining society, not realizing that the entire time he's yelling at Draws, Draws is holding the microphone he had when he made his big address that said, we're not going to protest. So in the end, Garcia Thompson is out, the pit is back in, and Tom decides that he is going to attend PCU next semester. Draws and Samantha, you know, they go off to have a cup of coffee and you get the feeling that Draws is actually going to let himself graduate because he's been going to that that college for like seven years. And Katie kisses Tom goodbye and Tom gets back on his bus. And as he drives away, he sees the entire student body chasing Rand McPherson across campus. It's one hell of a weekend, right? (laughs) When I get back, I will have my top five favorite things about PCU. Hi, folks. Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaikin pen, Guy Gerker collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. 
Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. PCU, while a fun movie to watch, isn't exactly one of the great movies. Um, for as many funny moments as it has, there are some that are pretty painful to get through. For instance, I find the whole gutter getting high and imagining he's sitting before the Senate Primary Judiciary Committee or whatever they are, cringeworthy. But Animal House's third act has issues as well, so I really can't say that any movie about college is perfect. And there's also quite a bit of PCU that is well worth the price of admission. And why I watched it on cable a billion times over before I finally broke down and bought the DVD. In fact, I might have had it on VHS first. And in true fashion, I'm going to go ahead and list five of my favorite things about the movie and talk about them. First is Jeremy Piven as Draws. Now, Draws is your typical fast-talking, know-it-all, smart-ass type of character and if PCU was made in the 2000s or even now, he would have clearly been played by Ryan Reynolds. Shit, Ryan Reynolds played him in Waiting. But Piven brings something very likable to his role, and what I like about Draws is that he's pretty much how Tom sees cool college guys. Tom's this wide-eyed kid who really doesn't have much of a clue as to what college is, so Draws seems cool. And as smarmy as this character could be, Piven gives him enough likability, and that's key because in the hands of a lesser actor, he would have been too annoying to make the movie enjoyable. Number two, Pigman and the Kane Hackman Theory. So a running gag throughout the movie is that Pigman, one of the residents of the pit, is sitting on the couch watching TV in order to research the Kane Hackman theory. Pigman! What's he doing? He's finishing his senior thesis. Pigman is trying to prove the Kane Hackman theory. No matter what time it is, 24 hours a day, you can find a Michael Kane or a Gene Hackman movie playing on TV. Is that his Yes. That's the beauty of college these days, Tommy. You can major in Game Boy if you know how to bullshit. At one point, a fuse blows, and he has to get off the couch to change the fuse. Ah, it's the needle! Oh, it's the needle! Oh. And finally, he reaches the conclusion by the end of the film. Kane and Hackman in the same movie together! This is my thesis, man! This is my closing argument! I can stop watching TV! It's really not that important to the plot, to be honest with you, but it is one of those times when the writers commit to a bit and see it through to the point where the ending of that bit feels satisfying. Not only that, there's clearly a connection made with the audience because we all have those films that are always on television. Shit, PCU was one of them. I've said a few places uh, here and there in conversation, I might have even said it on a podcast episode or two, that the Kane-Hackman theory can be applied to a couple of other things these days. For one, the films A A Few Good Men and The Shawshank Redemption both seem to have seriously long cable lives, and I'm pretty sure that you can apply 
the Kane Hackman theory to Law and Order reruns. But I love this bit. I was one of those kids who probably watched too much TV back in the day, especially after we finally got cable. And I did notice that there was like this cycle of the same movies that ran over and over and over again. And and, um, I've heard people on the Two True Freaks, well, back when we had the Two True Freaks boards, and uh, on podcasts and things, talk about how HBO would run the same movies over and over and over again back in the 80s, and, and that was the case with some of the syndicated channels too. So it's kind of a little bit of a, a, a nod toward that type of movie, which in a kind of ironic way, PCU became eventually, at least for, for a period in the very late 1990s. So it's one of the reasons I love this bit so much. Number three, David Spade and Jessica Walter. Look, David Spade has basically made a career out of playing the sniveling little twerp. Um, But this is an early film role for him. In fact, I think up to this point, I'd seen him in Reality Bites very briefly and on Saturday Night Live. Um, And then he would go on. I think he would. people would really, really know who he was uh, when Tommy Boy would come out the following year. But... PCU, he's got great chemistry with Jessica Walter, who's just the epitome of the stone cold bitch. In fact, I, um, the funny, this is going to be a very, very obscure reference, and some of you might get it, but, but when I, when I saw the movie and I saw her, she reminded me of, um, Mrs. Grace Musso, the principal from Parker Lewis Can't Lose, uh, which, you know, had been on television, I think a couple of years before that. I think that show went off the air in about 91 or 92. So for the time, it wasn't an obscure reference. But she is, I mean, she she is so good. And, and one, at one point, my, my wife loves this line, but he turns to her at one point when everything is going to absolute shit at the, at the celebration, the bicentennial celebration, he turns to her. He's like earth to tall bitch. It's just, it's just one of those great lines. And, and really you need a good villain in a movie like this. You need, if you're going to have kind of the, the, the outcast, the slobs against the snobs or however you want to tag it, you need the, you need like the, you need the Dean Wormer and the Marmalade and, 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 and Walter, Outwormers John Vernon at some points. She's just so that focused, like politically brown nosing, like, you know, just the, the scene she's at the reception and she's talking to the board of trustees people and she says, Well, I think that bisexual Asian studies needs its own building. Who's going to go, though? The math department or the hockey team? I mean, that's so dead on of, of that type of person. And, and, um, and, she uh, she imbues her character all that PC craziness, and that's why she's such a standout character in the film. In fact, one of the funnier things on the DVD is that there is a there's a featurette. The featurette is like a college recruiting video for Portchester University, where it's hosted by her. Um, kind of like way back in the day when back in the 90s when college would send out videotapes about the college and they'd interview like a famous alumni or current students and stuff like that to try to get you to go um so that it's a cute little feature add on, on the dvd uh, the dvd is pretty uh readily available too if you ever want to track it down anyway she is the she is a great great character and i think she gets a lot of the satire which in itself is the fourth thing I wanted to talk about regarding the movie. Um, and it's a good place to talk about it as any. 
There's a lot of physical comedy in here. There's a lot of general silliness in here. But there is a serious amount of satire apparent, but also lurking below the surface of the movie. One of the things people were growing tired of by this time, by the time this movie started to gain whatever popularity it has, was the hyper-awareness in our culture that pervaded the early 1990s. There's nothing wrong with awareness, per se. Uh, but there certainly was a backlash as you got into the mid to late 1990s, and certainly into the 2000s over what was called quote, political correctness. What this film does pretty deftly at times, and not so deftly at others, is lampoon the general activist atmosphere associated with college campuses uh, without actually getting too political about it. In other words, the writers, director, characters, or whomever aren't saying that like this or that individual political leaning or cause is wrong because it's almost like every type of political viewpoint is represented, whether it's Rand or the Womenists or the um, or the causes or anything else. Um, they're simply saying that people maybe should try to dial it down a notch. And nowhere is that more and nowhere is that more apparent than with the cause heads. The cause heads who are represented by the by that hippie chick character named Moonbeam are, as Draws says, a group of a group that finds something to protest and sticks with it for about a week. I personally love this because, well, how is this not every hashtag of protest we see on Facebook and Twitter just about every other week now? You know, someone will turn their profile picture a certain color or add, add a hashtag to the end of a post or retweet some graphic or you know, wear pink or something, and then they'll feel better about, quote, helping a cause, and they're really not doing that much of anything, to be honest with you. The cause heads are slacktivism before the term slacktivism was even thought of, and I have to give props to PCU because it was a pretty prescient uh, display, even if they wrapped it up in the kind of, you know, out there space cadet hippie type that is always good for lampooning because they're kind of a cartoonish type of character. Um, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think it would have been a slightly smarter comedy if it had pursued a little bit more of that sort of biting satire, but but it did need to... I think the, they felt the need to go with the dumb college comedy type of stuff as well and there isn't the best balance of that in places and I think that's one of the reasons why the movie isn't like in sort of the pantheon of of teen movies and was kind of a bomb anyway but really um, the last thing I do love is is about PCU is that it is dumb <laughs> but and and it'll make sense when I explain this but but number five on my top five list here is that PCU is a disposable movie. So we have our favorite movies, and we know what the, quote, best movies are. And sometimes those don't line up necessarily. Um, sometimes you really, really, really like The Breakfast Club, yet your average movie buff or even film critic or academic would say that, uh, oh, I don't know, something by um, Truffaut or something is much better, you know, whatever. Um we have what we like, we have, but we also have what people, what, what is said is the best. Um, and quite a number of movies that make either of those lists are not the type that you can just throw on for background noise or you can fall asleep to or that you can come in right in the middle of at random on cable and not really care that you missed the first half hour. Citizen Kane, for instance. Citizen Kane is a great movie. 
technically, but it's not one I'm going to watch over and over and over again. I've only seen it once, really, in its entirety. The Godfather, that might be one I do want to watch more than once, but I have to be in the mood to watch that. And really, and, and if I'm going to watch Godfather Part 2, I really have to clear my schedule for an entire afternoon. But really, film you get a film like PCU, and it hits you in the same place that like a rerun of your favorite sitcom hits you. It's a fun film, and it doesn't pretend to be anything important, which I think is really all you can ask for in a film like this. And it's why I, when I look at some of the films I've talked about over the course of this podcast over the last couple of years, you, you've got your Better Off Dead and your St. Almost Fire, your One Crazy Summer, Say Anything in the Breakfast Club, and you have... Um, can't buy me love and, and and weekend at Bernie's and there's there's a disposability to all those movies. I mean, some of them really really hit you somewhere else than than just like this is fun to watch. But a lot of them, it's it's like they're they're like a comfort food. You can you can come in the middle of them. You know the movie. You know what you're looking for. You can ignore parts of it. Um, and. And that's what makes it enjoyable, and that's what makes those movies so enduring in our public consciousness. Um, you know, even if some of them are kind of crap, but but that's the joy of of movie going and movie watching, and that's what I kind of like, really do like about about this movie. And that's really it. Um, it I do recommend that you go check out PCU. I'm not sure if it's on it's streaming on Netflix or anything like that, but it certainly is available on DVD. Every once in a while, it'll still pop up on cable, but not that much anymore. And as for me, I've got about three more episodes left uh, for the year, for 1994, the most important year of the 90s. And I'll be back in a few weeks, where if all goes according to plan... I'll be talking about television in 1994, and I'll have a guest along with me. And then I will have another TV episode and one last episode toward the end of December to wrap it all up. In the meantime, check out for more posts on the blog that tie into 1994. I just had one last week that was about uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I know I've got a couple of other ones lined up between now and the end of the year. And... I'm not going away in 2015, but I've got other stuff planned, and, and you'll you'll hear me talk about that in the future. So, once again, thank you for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. 
It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.